Welcome to The View from the North Curve, a podcast covering all things North Curve Celtic. I'm your host Kev, just a big thanks to everybody again for tuning in. Hope we're all good, hope we're all keeping well, I hope we're all enjoying the, the recent episodes that we've been firing out. This time around we're going to continue on as we've been doing, marking this year the, the 40th anniversary of the hunger strike in the H-Box, along Cash, And we're going to be speaking with Tommy McCourt. Tommy was born in the Bogside in Derry. He lived through the, the struggle for civil rights and he, the struggle for Irish freedom. And he's now a community worker and still striving to create a a better life for the, the working class people in the occupied six counties. So, aye, just a big a big thanks to everybody for tuning in and I hope you all enjoy the lesson with Tommy. Cheers. Well, uh, I'm kind of a little bit unsure as to when they start and when they finish in a sense, but I suppose uh, in order to try and put the thing in context, I need to put myself at least in a little bit of context um like just been said i was born and bred in the bog and Derry, uh and like most other young working class lads here we had very little interaction i suppose you want to call it with the state or or any of its agencies including the police or whatever they were always seen as outsiders as potential enemies as certainly people you didn't uh he didn't uh, treat us friends, that's for sure. Uh, and that, that was the, the background I grew up in, uh, like most working class kids, very little money, living in very bad housing situations, uh, very, very strong, very much unemployment, particularly among men. Most of the workers in Derry at that time would have been shirt factory workers, were women. The old song about men walk the dogs is, is actually fairly true, um, because it, as I say, there was very little work for men. And and like many others, uh, we just kind of grew up accepting the situation we lived in as if it was normal. Um, I think what happened was in the early, you know, 67, 68, that 1967, 68 period and so on, some individuals who had benefited from the old Education Act that was brought in in Britain in 1947, I think it was, or 48, were allowed to go to university for the first time, working class kids received a third level education. And some of those individuals were beginning to return to their own communities and they had greater expectations and higher ideals than many of their forefathers or, or, or uh, uh, their, their parents and so on, because they, they'd sort of come to accept their lot, whereas the new young people coming forward had begun to ask for more and begun to look at around them. And at the same period of history, world history, uh, there were all our struggles taking place. The Black Panther movement in America, the Black Civil Rights Organizations, struggle for civil rights, there was the Paris riots. Um, you know, there was, throughout the world, there was a kind of a general move towards change and so on, leading towards the, I suppose, the love generation, the happy movement, all that type of stuff. And that was represented by singers like Bob Dylan and, you know, protest singers complaining about wars in general and about the, the, the state of the situation that we all lived in. 
And like many other young people, uh, it was a very attractive message to people like myself uh, at, at that age group. Uh, and, and we began to question and began to look around at the society we lived in and began to realize that, you know, all's not too, too well here. We began to realize, for example, the, the voting situation was so, as such that we might have had a, a, a particular area in Derry where, you know, you had 5,000 people and they elected 10 councillors. Uh, whereas a, another area, which meant have been nationalist area, might have had 30,000 people and only elected five councillors. It was called gerrymandering, and it meant that there was unionism within the city, even though the city, in, in reality, had a, 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 a nationalist majority. And in those circumstances, people like Eamon McCann and uh, Michael Farrell and some of the earlier members of the, the Civil Rights Association, like, well, a bit like myself or Johnny White and, and so on, began to realize that demands need to be put on the system, regardless of the, of the old Republican position of, you know, it was all about a United Ireland. Uh, they began to realize this, well, it's a bit more than just about a United Ireland. It's about what type of United Ireland and what type of society. And people began to read the likes of Connolly and so on, saying, no, you can change the color of your polar boxes tomorrow morning from red to green, but it'll still be the same people who control you. And that began to began to be sort of a, a topic. The civil rights movement itself uh, was on October the 5th. Um, and on October the 5th, uh, we all took part. Well, when I say all, I mean, I think a total, there were probably about two or 300 people actually took part in the march. Um, and I was, well, I suppose I had the honour of being one of them at the time. I didn't think it was much of an honour. But uh, looking back on it, I, I am pleased to be able to say I was on the first march. Uh, and the, the first march was very, very simple. It was just simply saying, give us our civil rights. Give us, you know, the right to vote, the right to housing, the right to... We thought fairly moderate, simple demands that any rational state or... Uh, should be at least, uh, you know, you should be able to ask off of the state. Uh, what happened in Derry was the exact opposite. We marched, as we thought, peacefully and I think probably when we uh, moved up the, up the street to a point, the police just simply batten charged the, the uh, march. People were beaten to the ground. I witnessed... Uh, a young woman with a pram and a water cannon spraying water directly into the, the pram where the child was in and dragging the pram out of the woman's hands. I saw, I personally, it's no big deal like now, but I personally was hit over the back of the head with what we would describe as a blackthorn stick, which was a a, a police carried it as a commander of the police. It was a detective sergeant, I think he was Majimsi. I got hit with that and others, all, many of us got done. But it, it, it kind of a, it was a major shock to the system that the society we were living in, even though we never really were part of it, and all, we, the, the fact that it responded in such a vicious and such a, an open way, uh, I think just it was a jolt to all of our consciousness. Uh, and then, of course, the very fact that the media, uh, which hadn't been available for these type of events in the past, and it, you know, I have to say these events occurred almost every generation, but... Um, the media didn't cover them in that in the same way. This particular time around, because of the advances in, in technology and so on, the media captured what happened on the on the streets of Derry that day, and it was all over the world news, never mind local news. 
And as a result of that, there was a massive uh, increase in demand for change. Uh, and a follow-up march was established, and the follow-up march, whereas there was no one only had two or three hundred people, the follow-up march had uh, somewhere in the region of 20 to 30,000 people. Um, but in the process of that, in my view, and this is a historical kind of analysis that I would have, may not agree with everybody else's, the, there was the middle-class uh, element of the nationalist community who were relatively comfortable within the six county state, even as it stood. The, you know, the, some of them had a, achieved a certain degree of wealth or business. Some of them had um, got a certain degree of politics. They got elected as councillors or whatever. And the church had a large uh, sway and, and, and so on over what people felt and thought and so on. So there were elements within the nationalist community who were quite were reasonably happy with the situation, but those those elements began to assert themselves in the aftermath of that march, where they saw it as a, a you know they could see and people could feel it was a seed change taking place that demands were going to start making d different demands and that other people were going to get involved that maybe hadn't been involved in the previous in in the past, and that that uh, led to a march a meeting in the Guildhall in Derry. Where they formed the civil rights, uh, the Dairy uh, Defence Association, and so on. John Hume was involved, and people like that. And I always remember the likes of Eamon McCann and and uh, Johnny White and people, the people who originated the first march, stepping off the uh, the Guild Hall platform and saying, "The, the this committee that they were then electing was middle aged, middle of the road, and middle class," and. Uh, so that set the scene, if you like, for the diverging politics that began to emerge from from the broad base of the civil rights movement, where there were different views on how it should go forward or what it should represent and so on. Uh, Eddie McAteer on one occasion came out with a statement saying, all, is all we wanted was or half a loaf for all is better than no bread. And unfortunately for Eddie, that nickname, if you like, stuck him for the rest of his political career and the, and the end of his political career. It was called Eddie Halfaloof. He went for half a loaf. And somebody asked me once, says, what's the difference between Eddie McAteer, John Hume, and Eamon McCann? And I said, well, Eddie wanted half a loaf. Uh, John Hume wants the whole loaf, but we want the bakery. Um, and that was, uh, that was in, in a case very symbolic of, of the different trends that existed within the, the broad civil rights movement. But as a civil rights movement in general, persisted with its demands for change with and still maintained its civil its uh, peaceful uh, ethos uh, marches and demonstrations and so on it increasingly brought the wrath of the state down on its head and increasingly more and more uh, elements of the, of the civil rights struggle began to feel that the only way to respond was in a similar fashion if somebody's going to uh, hit me with a, a, a baton, I'm going to hit them back. Uh, and the, that that was a, an element that began to emerge within the civil rights movement. That element attracted some people towards one or other of the particular organizations that were out there. The official Republican movement, which hadn't been formed, there hadn't been a split at that point between the officials and the professionals. There was simply the Republican movement, and the Republican movement had uh, analysed the situation and had pinned their politics around the whole question of developing a broad-based 
uh, civil rights struggle for uh, to achieve democracy, if you like, within the northern state. Uh, and that was the position that the Republican movement had. That that position was increasingly been undermined by the attacks from the RUC, as it was then, and from the attacks uh, from the British Army when they were, when they were brought on the streets. And people began to say the national question, the old question, the question that has never been answered, uh, is still very much to the fore, and uh, it needs to be considered again. And 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 so there was elements then, if you like, within the Republican specifically within the Republican community about the strategy and tactic of looking to democratize Northern Ireland on the one half and the other part saying we need the real problem here is the British and what we need is is to get rid of them and, and have an independent country to decide its own future. And that both of those arguments were attractive in different ways. Some people felt yeah, if we could get new housing and new jobs and, and so on, wouldn't that improve our, our our lot? Wouldn't we be all much better off? Wouldn't we be a lot happier? Uh, and and so on. Others felt that no, the long the long long question of a, a British uh, interference in this country is still not answered, and until it is, it'll always reemerge. And that's the kind of basis of the split that occurred then between the officials and the provisionals. That some of the members of the leadership or the the, the prominent members, at least at that time, uh, were saying some felt that you know the, the officials had, if you like, abandoned the 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 national question in favour of the class question, uh, and some of the officials felt that it was the exact opposite that uh, members of the provisional, the emerging provisional movement, had abandoned the class issues in favour of the national issues, and arguments were used from previous struggles, you know, again, Connolly was a particular focus of, you know, you can't change you know, the system unless you change the system. But, you know, it's not enough to declare uh, United Ireland, but how is it going to be run and in whose favour? And, you know, so those type of uh, nationalist, if you want to call it, stroke class arguments, uh, began to emerge as as a clear kind of positions within the different the different factions, if you want, within the Republican movement, and it led to the provisionals walking out of the Ardesh in, in Dublin uh, and declaring the name. We are now a provisional Ardcoria, and that was followed shortly afterwards by we are also a provisional Army Council. The officials, on, on the other hand who were at that particular moment in time regarded as, well, the word is what it says, the official IRA, they are the real official IRA type of thing. They, they saw the, the, the people who are leaving as right-wing nationalists who really don't care who runs the country and, you know, uh, that they were very, they had a very negative attitude, let's put it that way, towards the provost. Provisionals, and the stickies got the nickname stickies simply from the Easter Lilies because at that time that both organisations brought out Easter Lilies, and in order to differentiate one from the other, the provisionals put pins in their Easter Lily to stick onto your lapel. The stickies, on the other hand, had the old sticky Easter Lily that stuck on your lapel, so they became known as the stickies, and that's where that the terminology came from. But Many, and I'm talking about people like myself now, who were in many ways attracted almost to both sides 
that you know, uh, and I would like to think now, looking back on it, you know, started to find it better and so on. It was maybe the attraction of the, the uh, Connolly argument that you cannot divorce the national question from the class question. I, I hadn't seen it in those terms at that particular time, but I think the emotions that that I felt that you know, on the one hand, the struggle against the British army and government being in our prey and and arresting people and so on has to be opposed. At the same time, the struggle to try and improve our housing and our homes and our jobs and uh, our living standards and all also has to be supported. So there was a kind of an over uh, lap, overlap between the two groups uh, in that from that point of view. But the, the state, in some ways, dictated which was going to emerge as the stronger group by their actions because they introduced internment. I mean, well, they had the August 1969 riots where the RUC tried to invade the bog and many of us uh, spent three days on, uh, on Russell Street opposing them coming in. It was a full-scale riot for three days. And then I suppose the history of the whole thing, people need to read it much more than I could maybe outline it here. But you had the Southern government uh, almost crumbling among itself some elements of the southern government talking about invading the north and the Irish army was getting moved to the border and so the whole situation was beginning to actually get to a point where it could have spiraled completely out of control in terms of military confrontation uh, at the same time they, they prevent this from going any foreign and come on they, they prevent this from going any foreign and come on they, they prevent this from going any further and in doing that, the British had accepted some of the activities of, of their unionist, whatever, colleagues or brethren had gone too far. And uh, so we were presented with a situation that after three days of rioting, the peace specials, I remember coming up in the dairy walls, all armed with 303 rifles. Many of us felt that there were, it's only a matter of literally minutes, maybe, before they start opening fire. Uh, and... and no, what can you do about it? You're, you're standing directly below the dairy walls and they're pointing right to stand. But there was, there was that, that, that urgency. And at the same time, we're being told that the Irish government are not going to stand idly by and they're not going to allow this to happen. There was a real tension in the air that this could potentially be. There was talk of the Irish army units were going to rush from the border to Belfast and they would come from Derry. It wouldn't be so difficult. They'd just cross the border to 10 minutes and they're in the city centre. Like, um, so uh, that was the atmosphere on that day. And then out of the blue, the British army appeared and people were confused and, uh, and understandably didn't know, well, whose side are they on? Or why are they here? What are they going to do? And there were people, without a shadow of a doubt, who welcomed the fact that the British troops had come in because the alternative could potentially have been a, a white slaughter in the, in the streets of Derry. Um, and, and so many, some people did go out and give them tea and welcome them and so on. Others were confused as they, well, where does, where does this take us? Where do we go? And then, of course, there was a very traditional Republican uh, responses. It's always been the same. The British are the people at the back of the, at the end of the day who are uh, creating, have created this problem and are maintaining this problem. And all this is, is a tactic and so on. And I think, to be honest, that they were correct in that analysis. Like, so that, that led to 
towards the, the, the much expanded and developing provisional IRA and the provisional Republican movement, which in turn had a certain level of support within the Irish government, as long as they stayed away from criticizing the South. Uh, there were some people at least were, were happy enough on them fighting against the North, but as long as you keep it away from the South, the Republican, official Republican movement still were maintaining that it has to be a 32 county change, socialist republic throughout the whole of the northern government and so on, attacking the southern government as much as the northern government and so on. And it became very convoluted arguments and, and people were, you know, were on the one hand agreeing in principle, but on the other hand saying, but it's not practical. And so all these different debates were going on within the Republican movement. And of course, as time went on, things happened, like uh, the British again respond with internment. Uh, which, to a large extent, in many, many ways, just changed the entire scenery because what happened there was just anybody who happened to either appear to be involved with or had a name or had a cousin who maybe might have been involved in the 50s or in the 20s or something, uh, all became targets. And uh, and the, the law, so-called law, was just abandoned and said, Look, there was no need for trials. There's no need for anything. Just arrest them and put them on side and block them up uh, in concentration camps, internment camps, whatever you want to call them. And at the same time, they were taking selected individuals, taking them to places like Ballykelly and torturing them. I mean, the British were taken to court in, in Strasbourg. And the only it was semantics where they said, well, it wasn't really torture. It's degrading and inhuman treatment. Uh, you know, I can degrade and inhumanly beat your head on, or I can uh, torture you by beating your head on. Uh, you know, uh, I think that, so, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I think the semantics of whether it's torture or isn't was just uh, a sleight of hand. But, but those things were all happening outside of the control of any of the Republican organizations or anything else. It was the state who were doing this, and the state were doing it at the demand and the behest of the unionist government and the unionist uh, hierarchy, if you want to call them, in, in, the, in the north. And, and that, in turn, led to an increasing resistance, which in turn itself was reflected in an increasing development support for, the, for one particular uh, section, if you like, of the Republican organizations, which was the, the provisionals because the officials were still arguing uphill about democratizing the North and about, you know, trying to attract unionist voters and trying to break up the, the hegemony of the, the uh, Protestant working class and so on. It was, that was all happening in, in a, when the reality was actually demonstrating an entirely different development. So the, as time moved on, the official leadership took it. Uh, in my view, a very conscious decision to remove any potential opposition that existed within their ranks that might challenge the official position. And there were elements within the official Republican movement, particularly in areas like Derry uh, and, and parts of Belfast. And, you know, but the, these were sort of key areas that were going to, I suppose, depending on their uh, the, how they developed, would certainly give a strong leadership uh, or or direction towards the rest of the movement. So Derry was seen as, as quite important, and, uh, not so much that people were, I suppose, frightened of any particular hard men in Derry or, 
are thinking that uh, Derry's full of weapons and they're likely to go and wipe everybody out or something like that. But but there was certainly a view that uh, the ideas that were coming out of Derry and the and the arguments that were coming out of Derry could prove attractive to quite a, a number of people. And one of the people who would have, <clears throat> if you like, espoused that general position was Seamus Costello. And I would have known Seamus quite well. I, I stayed in his home. I, I met him on a number of occasions for all sorts of different reasons that I really won't go on to in this. But um, Seamus was one of the people who articulated the, the feelings that many of us had and people like myself, Seamus O'Kane, and Johnny White, both of whom are now dead, uh, were people who, you know, felt that uh, the direction of the movement was not was not going to lead to any success and that at the same time to try and just simply imitate or copy the provisionals was to set up provisionals mark two and we accepted many of the criticisms that had been made of the provisionals by the officials and by others that so nobody uh, among the group i'm talking about now which would have been maybe loosely described as the left republican position or whatever um very few people among that wanted to simply mimic the provost and there certainly were very few of those people wanted to go with the official line so what began to happen was people began to speak and talk uh and, and as friends meet and and maybe people on the run and they've stayed in other people's houses and so on and there was a, a sort of a spreading dialogue taking place as they were as all going and what should how could it be changed or is there is there an option to change it and there was a resolution put forward which became known as the Donegal resolution that was put forward to RDS which is basically called on the leadership to cease it's what was described as Stalinist strategy of of uh, democracy in the north excuse me and to look at the leadership uh, you know at an operate challenge to the leadership uh, you know at an operate challenge to the leadership uh, you know at an operate challenge to the leadership uh, you know at an open rds and it did not go down well and from that rds to the next rds the officials spent most of their political time in uh, finding reasons why people like myself people like johnny white people like Seamus Coslow, people like, well, like go through lists of names of people from different areas should be removed because we're posing an alternative and the alternative could be attractive. So that was the strategy that the official leadership adopted and, and, and led to eventually the expulsion of people. Uh, I was personally stopped. I was a delegate to Ardesh in Dublin representing Wicklow as I was living in Wicklow at the time. Uh, I was uh, And I was stopped at the door and told that I was barred from the RDS for three days. I was suspended because I was supposed to have threatened somebody or other. I don't even know who it was. And there was an argument that took place at the door of the RDS. And I remember leaving the RDS and going across the street to the Gresham Hotel and Seamus was in it because Seamus had been barred from the RDS. And I remember the words I used to him. I, he said to me, how's it going? I said, Seamus, it's a bit and docket. And that's it. And I says, you know, from that that moment up was the decision was taken by Seamus to establish an alternative, and that became the Irish Republican Socialist Party. You know, there's a whole long history as to how it emerged in different common areas and different 
uh, areas of Dublin, Belfast, and so on and so on, began to uh, be attracted towards the position that the IRSP had adopted. And remember, in the middle of all of this, we were st- the, the prisons were still flowing. I mean, you know, the blanket protest started in 1976. <clears throat> and the, all the blanket protest was about was to say that we're not prepared to wear a prison uniform. That, you know, it, uh, there's the old song, I'm sure many have heard it, you know, that uh, Britain's laws make Ireland's cause, 500 years of crime and all the rest of it. That was the position that Republicans, many Republicans adopted when they went on the jail. I am here, and I'm here because I'm a Republican. I'm here because of my Republican activities, and I'm not prepared to allow that to be criminalized. That this is a political struggle, and it's a historical struggle, and I will stand by that. And that led to many prisoners saying, uh, the first one being Kieran Nugent, who said, "You can whatever you want to do, you can do to me, but if you want me to wear that uniform, you're going to have to nail it on my back. And that was the first person who went on the blanket. And then more and more prisoners as they were jailed, and it was all because Maggie Thatcher had decided that up until a particular date, if you were arrested, you were run for a political reason. And from that date, if you were arrested, you were as a criminal. So it wasn't the actual event or the, the, the uh, cause in the sense of what did you actually do? Should somebody blow up somewhere or whatever it happened to be? That was not what differentiated one day from the next. It was a political decision. I am not going to recognize you as a political prisoner. That had nothing to do with what you had actually done. That had to do with the, the struggle to uh, criminalize the Republican struggle for, for a free, for a free uh, Ireland. And as I say, the prisoners went on that the the the, the hunger or that that protest actually went from 1976 to 1981. But during that protest, as things developed and things got worse, the situation developed within the prisons where individuals who refused to wear the blanket, out of the blue, the the prison uh, jail regimen decided they will not be allowed to take visits if they don't put on a school, uh, uniform. So the prisoners then said, we will not take visits. So many of them sat in cells. I have a friend who sat in the same cell for five solid years without one visit, right? And and many others were in a similar situation. Now, I mean, as that, as that moved on, that didn't change the, the, the issues in these prisons. The pri- issues still existed. So the prisoners themselves weren't broken. The the prison government or the prison governors or whoever took the decision decided that the next tactic would be that not only would they not be allowed to have visits, but they will not be allowed to go to the toilet unless they wear a prison uniform. So that left the prisoners facing a simple choice. You can't stop yourself going to the toilet. So what do you do? Do you decide a given and wear a prison uniform or have to live with what your what the situation has created? And that's what they decided to do. And that became known as the dirty protest. And that dirty protest started around 1978. Now that left a situation where hundreds of young men and women were sitting in cells with nothing on them but blankets, defecating in their own cells. And in order to try and maintain some kind of hygiene, they had no choice, but they left it off the floors and smeared it on the walls to try and keep because they at, at, initially they started to put it out the windows. Uh, the, 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 the mess, they put it out the windows, but the screws barricaded up the windows. 
So, uh, the, so there was nothing accidental about this. This was thought out and strategized and planned to put young men and women from our communities into cells, sitting naked except for a blanket, and then defecating in their own cells. And then they started coming in with high-pressure hoses, hosing down the cells with the men and the women still in them. So that's it. Living, you know, imagine anybody living in those circumstances, not for a, a day or a week or maybe even a month, but for five years living in those situations. Is it any wonder that at some point the prisoners decided enough is enough? And that's when they decided to, that the step would be they were going to go on hunger strike. And the first hunger strike commenced in, in uh, 1980, and it lasted for 52 days. And that first hunger strike attracted thousands of people on the streets, full support from all sorts of um, you know uh, areas and, and countries, seeking the, the British to recognise the realities of what they're dealing with here. But they didn't. But they did try to con the prisoners. They went on and they met prisoners and they talked about, look, we can do it this way. You know, we have to keep safe face and we have to do what. So the prisoners were to an extent conned that it was a matter of who looks to give up first. Uh, but in reality, we will, we'll, we'll get what we need. So the prisoners at that time took a decision that they would end the hunger strike, uh, with a, with a background promise that things would change and move on and that they'd be able to uh, justify their hunger strike and so on. Instead of that, they actually, once they got the prisoners off the hunger strike, they began to treat them even worse. And it became very obvious that the, the hunger strike had been betrayed, that the British government had not negotiated in good faith. Uh, and the, the, so after a while, the prisoners announced on the 4th of February, they announced a second hunger strike. And this time they made it in such a way that it would be a slow build up, not everybody at the one time and so on. And so the second hunger strike started on the 1st of March, which is today's anniversary. This is the day that Bobby Sands first went first, his first day on hunger strike. And, uh, I could go through of it. Last year of the individuals, Bobby Sands, 27 years of age, 66 days on hunger strike. Francie Hughes, 59 days on hunger strike. Raymond McCreese, 61 days and so on. All of them, they're all averaged in 60 around days. Uh, and their average ages are all 20, mid-20s, 23, 24. Young men in the height of their prime of their life, if you want to call it, who were willing to sacrifice everything in their lives for the principles that they supported and the, and the cause that they were fighting for. And it was read out very eloquently there at the start of Bobby Sand talking about Stan trembling and the, on the verge of a trembling new world. This this was the thoughts that were going through those men's heads. Now, on a personal level, I, I having joined the, the civil rights movement at the start and uh, the initial uh, involvement with the Dairy Young Socialists and so on. I eventually joined the official Republican movement and I was part of the, I suppose, I don't know if you want to call it a faction or whatever, who opposed the, the leadership of the then, the then leadership of the official Republican movement and supported the likes of uh, Seamus Coslow. Uh, and for my sons, if you want to call it, I've spent a number of... Um, Vacations in the south that were, were, were not of my choosing. Uh, I have had a um, 
had it, I've had a love with that, and, and, and so on. And my home was at the end was was married man with children. My home was raided on a regular basis. I spent time in Castle Ray. I've spent time in practically every barracks you can name. Um, and that's that's I'm I'm not making myself out to be any kind of a hero. That's fairly common. That you know I'm one of many. So it's it's not that that I'm trying to the point I'm trying to make is this was the nature of the life that we were living then. And and the nature of the of the life that the prisoners were living that forced them to take a decision that they could no longer live as animals, that they were going to stand up for their rights. Um so um that that's that's basically the background to how how the whole struggle, if you like, became um that, you know how it developed to the point that when they when they when the RSP itself uh, was formed, it was formed. The Spanish P took a decision, and uh, the IRSP took a decision that it would be a party which would uh, have both, uh, if you like, the tone track approach, if you want to call it, the 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 class question and the national question cannot be divided. That if you're struggling for a free Ireland, you need to struggle for a socialist republic. If you're struggling for a social republic, you cannot have one if you're going to be dominated by a foreign occupation. So you have to struggle for a free country. So both are the same. And that's, and it's based on the, on the teachings, I suppose, of James Connolly and his analysis of what, I mean, I often say to people, you know, <clears throat> when, when the, the old song talks about, Pierce calling, you know, meet me at the pillar place and, and so on. And they all went into the GPO. They didn't all go in as, as one single unity, united, uh, political voice. There were different organizations went under the GPO. You know, the Irish Citizens Army were representing Connolly's particular brand, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, you know, the, the volunteers. It was Irish Republic. It's a result of what happened in the GPO that the Irish Republican Army coalesced into a single fighting force um so uh, you know it's not unusual in this day and age for people to re-examine the struggle that we've been involved in uh, ask if it has achieved the the goals that it has set itself out to do ask has it uh, in, in any and quite natural and that's quite normal and quite natural and that's quite normal and quite natural and that's what's actually happening in my view in the present minute that there's quite a number of people who for whatever their backgrounds have been in some fashion through their families or through their own personal involvements have been involved in one or other of the various republican uh, related organizations trying to achieve uh, the, a form of independence and a form of freedom and and some of these organizations have proved to be less effective than ours have gone down wrong roads some have in my view sold out completely the principles that they were adopting and some are still struggling to try and gain a, a decent foothold and, and support among the general population and the, the general community and that's where we are at this point in time but but they sort of conclude on it all is the thing that strikes me much more I, I, when I say personal friends, I mean, I, I'm not talking about, you know, we grew up together and we ran to every dance together. But the people that I became, I came to know, uh, you know, the, the likes of, uh, what he called, Mickey Devine, Patsy O'Hara, and uh, Kevin Lynch and people like that, who were people that I just got to know over the years through different involvements. I would have known Mickey particularly 
from from when he was a young man that joined the Republican movement Derry, and I knew Patsy in the same fashion. There was less maybe less contact with Kevin because he was from the outside of the city, he was in the country area, but I still got to know him. And I mean, I remember going on to see Mickey Devine. He was the last person to die on the hunger strike. And, you know, I'm not saying it was easy enough for the first, far be it. It wasn't easy for anyone. But at least there was hope, of even in the person that was dying, that my death might lead to a better world or might lead to, you know, it gives at least some kind of reason and some kind of sense to it. But when you're talking about the last person to die, who's looking at nine dead comrades and who in his own head must had realised that this isn't going to get what I had hoped for. I went to see Mickey uh, a short time before he died and I was talking to him in the cell and in the hospital wing and I said to him straight out, I said, Mickey, you need to understand you're not going to get these five demands. And Mickey says, Tommy, and I'll tell you the words he used, he's trying to tell me I'm ordered off a hunger strike. And I says, Mickey, I can't order you off a hunger strike. I says, I didn't order you on it. And nobody ordered you on it. You took a decision to go on it. But what I'm saying to you, Mickey, is if you're, if you wish to stop this hunger strike now for yourself, if you wish to do it, I can tell you that you will have the full support of the organization and everybody else on the outside. People will understand why. And I remember Mickey looking at me and he says, Tommy, it's all right for you to surrender on the outside. You walk up the bar, you have a pint, and you say, oh, geez, we're a bit. But he says, if I surrender on here, I'll be going back under those blocks, under that cell, and they'll be treated like a fucking animal. And he turned around and he says, I'll be out of here next week. And if, he knew what he was saying. And Mickey sat and he asked me, did he make one pledge for him? He discussed his funeral, how he wanted to, what streets he wanted to go, what the direction from where he's home in Craigan. And he also asked one one guarantee from me and the guarantee he asked was that I would not remove the tricolour off his coffin until he was put into the grave and I said Mickey I can't guarantee you that because if your body is taken into the chapel they will insist that the tricolour comes off it and Mickey's attitude was fuck the chapel I don't want that tricolour coming off my coffin and it didn't Mickey I don't know about the rest but Mickey's funeral took place without his body going to the chapel that flag remained on his coffin until even under the grave. And that was despite a lot of pressure from priests and everybody else to allow it to come under the chapel. So, you know, that's how determined and how principled people like Mickey Devine were. And I can only, even all these years later, like, uh, you know, I'm not saying for one second that I would like to be one of them men. Uh, you know, a death's a death, and no, nobody can, uh, in, in all honesty, would should be sitting saying they'd like to die. But I definitely would have to honour their memory, and I definitely would have to forever recognise the courage that they have, and they probably have a lot more courage than me. But I, I that's my view on, on the, the horse ring, and I don't believe it should ever be forgotten. And I think that people who are running around selling plates with Bobby Sands face on it, a plate for a man who died in Hunger Street, you know, and people who are running around propagating that the, the the words of Bobby Sand, they pick and choose which words suits the current political scene film. I think that's an absolute disgrace. And I could go on <laughs> forever. 
you know, about uh, a lot of this, but I hope maybe this has given some thought for people to think about. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, Tommy, have you on speaking with us. Just big, big thank you, not just on behalf of other boys, but probably on behalf of everybody that's, that's tuned in and, and, gave, and listened in to you. Uh, what we've done now is we've took in some questions that I'm going to fire over to you. First up, if you could give us a, a wee bit of an insight into Civil Rights Association and Bloody Sunday, if you don't mind, to give everybody a wee, you know, better sort of insight to an overview of sort of your experiences. Uh, I know this the episode we were primarily trying to keep it uh, about the hunger strikes, but it would be interesting to hear your, you know, your experiences and, and speak to everybody about about that. Well, uh, well. Before I just get on the bloody Sunday, let me just say that I mean I have a personal connection in terms of bloody Sunday, in the sense that my partner that I love with Jackie, her son uh, Darren, as you all know, Peel, uh, his grandfather was shot on bloody Sunday. Uh, you know, and he campaigned. He's Mickey, unfortunately, has passed away since, but. For many, many years from the, from the shooting of Bloody Sunday, Maggie Bradley fought tooth and nail to try and get justice and try and get the truth to come out as to what actually happened on that day. So there's a, you know, I have a, obviously a, a personal view on, on a personal connection there. But as to the actual event itself, as I said, I mean, I, I was asked at one point to, to give some evidence at a tribunal. Uh, and they sent out some documentation, which I had totally forgotten about, to be frank. But uh, one of the documents that sent out was a list of the founding members of the uh, Derry Civil Rights Association. And when I got that documentation, the first name on the documentation was a man called Jerry Doherty. Jerry Doherty was well known in Derry. He's an old man. He's dead now. Jerry was called, was had a nickname, Jerry the Bird. And the reason he was called Jerry the Bird is Jerry had spent so many, too much time in different jails over, over his Republican uh, activities. I'm talking about going back to the 40s. But he escaped from everyone. And they used to say the bird has flown. And uh, so that's where Jerry got the nickname. And in fact, when Jerry died, it was actually blazoned up in the Terry Walls. Somebody went up and painted on the dairy walls. The day he died, the bird has flown, you know. And no, so Jerry, Jerry was listed as the first person to join the Dairy Civil Rights Association. And the second name on that list is mine. So according to the list, I was the second member of the Dairy Civil Rights Association. I don't know if that was just the way somebody wrote it down or, or whether it actually is chronologically true, I'm not I'm not hundred percent sure. But that's where my name is. So the point the point was that the, the Civil Rights Association was seen not as a tool of the Republican movement, but as a strategy that the Republican movement would support and and encourage. So the the the, the concept of civil rights was somebody said, look, you know, all we're looking for here is a democratic equal society where people will have the right to vote, the right to a home, the right to jobs. And that was seen by the Republican element, if you want, as not being a threat 
to anybody who maybe wanted to be British as opposed to who wanted to be Irish or whatever, that regardless of whether you want to be British or, or want to be Irish or American or African or any other uh, nationality, the demand for housing and jobs and, and voting and so on should be universal. It's it, it, it's not a one-sided debate here. Like, a, you'll get the vote, but the rest is don't. It's for everybody. So the, the officials believed that that was a, a an acceptable strategy and, a, and a, probably a, a workable strategy. And so they would have been supportive and encouraged their membership to be part of the development of any civil rights association. So I was part of that, the same as many others. Uh, and, and the civil rights association organized, uh, in the main, either large gatherings or marches, uh, to, to highlight the problems in the existence of, uh, in the North. And, uh, Bloody Sunday was one of those because Bloody Sunday said, you know, end internment, uh, because this is wrong. It, it shouldn't be happening and so on. And the Bloody Sunday March, just no matter what the British say, was a peaceful demonstration of almost 30,000 people who left the Craigan and marched their way towards the Giltal to make, to register that protest. And as they went, come down William State, have come in, after having marched through the bog, they ran up against an army barricade, and the army barricade was staffed and, and controlled by the paratroop regiment. And when the, the crowd uh, ended up face to face with them, Obviously, the parties weren't letting them pass. The crowd were stubborn and weren't prepared to give up looking to get past. So there was confrontation. But the confrontation wouldn't have been all that different. To And I'm, I'm not saying a normal society. We're not a normal society and we never were. But, uh, but it certainly wouldn't have been all that different to other confrontations that took place in the city. It, you know, those type of things happen fairly regularly. So there was no major deal difference in the fact that a number of people remained at the front of the march, throwing stones at the, the, excuse me, at the Brits. You know, as I said, I'm not saying it was okay to do that, but what I'm saying is it wasn't unnatural. It was a normal kind of situation. But for the parties to out of the blue suddenly decide that their response to that is to come straight onto the broad side and open fire on unquestionably innocent people who were not armed, women, and men who were simply at a march and like anybody else in the face of gunfire ran. What else could they do? Standing alone. In fact, there were some one or two people who actually stood with their hands in the air saying, shoot me, you bastard. You know, that's how much the anger had started to develop. But I mean, the, 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 the shooting and the murder of those people, uh, was just, Unbelievable. People just, you couldn't, people were looking around saying, Jesus, they're shooting them dead. They're lying on the ground. Their heads blown off. What the fuck is going on? This is the way people were responding. Now, the part, the, the, you have to understand, the, the IRA, and I'd say both things, and I'm, I'm not in a position to speak for any of those two organizations anymore at the moment. So, they, I mean, the IRA both have issued statements saying that they were not engaged in a gunfire or gun battle or of any description with the British Army. Now, in the circumstances, the, the, the day, the moments after the, literally almost moments after it happened, journalists came pouring out of the city hotel, which showed you they weren't even at the march. That's how little they expected this to happen. 
But some of the some of the journalists who were in the city at the time come charging over from the city hotel. What's going on? We're hearing all this shooting, and other journalists. The, the town was coming down with journalists the next morning. They were coming from all over the world, and everyone who came in and was I, certainly I spoke to and others that spoke to. Every one of them said the same thing. The British are saying there was a gun battle. The British are claiming that this was a result of people being shot in the middle of a gun battle. And they're also claiming that many of the people who were shot were actively involved in the gun battle, not just bystanders. They were also actively involved. Because there any possibility we could speak to some of the gunmen? Now, everybody was responding exactly the same way. What gunmen are you talking about? There was no gunmen. Now, it did emerge at a later date, much later, that a single shot had been fired, right? But that was at the time, in the circumstances, nobody was going to stand up and say, well, hold on a minute, uh, there's no gunman, but there was one single shot, and suddenly you're getting headlines all over the place, uh, IRA admits to fighting, shooting, and whatever. So it was an understandable and uh well, lie might be too strong of a word, but it was certainly an understandable um, uh, part left out because it would only have helped to justify what the parties were trying to claim. Now, as time came, moved on and time began to settle down and people were a bit more realistic and people began to realise the actual truth of what did happen and how it happened and all the rest. In those circumstances, it was easier for the IRA to be able to step forward and say, look, just to have the record cleared here and making sure everybody fully understands, we will accept that this did happen. And this is a, a one incident. And in no way it happened 15 or 20 minutes before the actual march. It in no way affected the response of the Paris and so on. So some of these stories have emerged since where, ah, but there were snipers and bloody Sunday and all the rest. It's once again an attempt to justify the unjustifiable. The people who were shot on that day, and I would have known a number of them on a personal level. I certainly would have known most of them by name or, or ever since, obviously knowing who they were, Bloody Sunday and so on. Uh, every single one of them, in my view, were totally innocent people who were shot. And it could have been me, it could have been anybody. I was on the march, so it was many, many hours. And I was just, you know, I remember Mickey Bradley, as I said, he was shot. And Mickey used to sit on here talking to Jackie and to a lesser extent, I suppose, myself, because I'm new to the family in that sense, but uh, certainly asking questions like, why me? Why did they shoot me? You know, and the answer just had to be straightforward. Mickey, they shot you because you were there. They shot you because you just happened to run at a, a time when somebody had a rifle pointing in your direction and let, let go with you. You know, they didn't shoot you because they recognised you. Oh, I know him. He's Mickey Bradley or or you had a freaking submachine gun hanging out of your pocket and they, and they, oh, he's carrying a weapon. That's not why they shot you. They shot you just because you happen to be there. And that's the reality. That's the truth of bloody Sunday. And they can claim all they want and say all they want, but that's the reality of what happened on it. We have a question asking that, obviously, within the box, there were separate factions at the time. Was there a you know, a general consensus about what was about to sort of happen? I think there's, uh, well, <laughs> what can I, how do you put this? I mean, if you were to ask me, uh, I, I couldn't, in all honesty, say that out of three, four hundred people, every single one of them had exactly the same view on, on that particular subject. There may have been 
possibly individuals in there who are saying, I think this is the wrong move. I think it's the wrong tactic. Uh, I personally will, will, would not. And there may be different reasons for that. You know, I could be a married man with three children saying, look, I really can't. I'm not prepared to go through this because I have a family to look after. Ours were maybe in a much more uh, sort of open position to be able to accept it. But if you were to ask whether there was a general view, in my, certainly from my point of view, if you were to ask if there was a general view that something like the hunger strike would be justifiable because they have tried everything else and they're being treated in the middle of Europe, so-called civilized West, in the middle of the mother of parliaments, Britain, you know, that we have prisoners who are being treated almost as bad as the, the Jews were treated in the Holocaust. Not obviously not the same scale or, or anything like it, but but and I'm not trying to make those type of comparisons, but you know, just as a human being, think of it. You know, you're sitting on a cell with a blanket, your own mess, your own thing, and, and somebody says, We've got to do something. And some people were saying, it's got to a point with me that I'm willing to die for this. Now, if you were to ask people, would you have agreed with that? You might say, well, I personally wouldn't do it, but I can understand why it's been done. And I'll certainly support the people who are doing it. And I think that would have been a general consensus, yeah. We have another question here asking what was the, the relationship between the different factions? More specifically, the provost and Inla at the time was it was it poor or was it more of a leadership issue or you know did that sort of manifest itself within the jail? Uh, well, it's fairly complicated the, the question you're asking. I mean, looking at different. Uh, firstly, I think in general terms, uh, uh, the answer to me, I would have to say the relationship between the likes of the NLA and the provisional IRA was not good. Uh, and I think there are many, maybe possible reasons for that. Uh, one, uh, you know, you can look at minor incidents and you can look at the major kind of politics of thing. In my view, the provisionals were, um, at least having within their own ranks, uh, difference of views as to the way forward and so on. There were some, um, some elements within the provisionals who weren't overly pleased with what they believe was starting to develop within the provisions, which turned out to be true at the end of it all, where they moved away completely from Armstrong and moved towards, you know, the, the, the Armani rather than the Armalite and so on. So there would have been elements within the provost who could potentially have become recruits for the NLA, and the provost would not have wanted the NLA to develop any power base uh, or, or widespread support, which could, be, could become attractive to some of their own people who might be maybe slightly dissatisfied or maybe majorly dissatisfied with the leadership. So there, there was that overall macro politics that w the INLA would have been a, a potential at the very least threat to the power base of the pros or, or, or whatever. But there's also then issues of personality. So, you know, where, you know, like I come from the Vogue, there's a fellow by street from the Vogue. We would have grown up together, but he joined the pros somewhere else. And, uh, you know, there would have been particular um, incidents where, you know, if somebody might have came to my door looking for help or looking for something, and he, with a personal bus, they should have came to my door. And so uh, there was all sorts of butts and pieces. And then there was all sorts of 
in my view, deliberate lies uh, spread. You know, uh, like one of the big things that they used to talk about the INLA was uh, the INLA is robbing uh, small shops, you know, stealing money out of shops or something. And like, uh, as someone who can speak with a certain amount of knowledge in this, I know it wasn't true, but it was useful propaganda for the people who said it. You know, but there was also in reality personalities, uh, differences where, you know, I can't stand that bastard over there. He don't like him and he doesn't like me and I know what I would do with him. And so, so there's a, a mixture of feelings going on within the individuals about their own power base, their own uh, justification for their own particular stand and why they are where they are. That, that, that would be natural opposition to people who are in a different stand. As far as the prisons are concerned, it uh, emerged after the, the hunger strike, the first, the, the, that it was more of a leadership-led, uh, I think purge is possibly maybe the right word, I don't know. But certainly there was a situation developed where former people who stood together were in, in both public uh, in support of a, 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 what was happening in the prisons and people who within the prisons themselves had cooperated together regardless of which organisation. Where that suddenly turned into, we don't want the INLA on our wing, and people were physically carried off the wing by other prisoners. And that's never been really developed, or the full story of that's never been told, you know. But I mean, uh, there, there was, there were certainly, uh, and I, I want to be careful how I put these things, it's sort of like a power struggle in a sense, but there were certainly like, we are the major faction. We are in this wing. This is our wing. And usually don't do what we tell you. Well, I need to have to go. You know, that there was a, a kind of... Now, I mean, there are people who would say, well, that's understandable. You know, if you're trying to have discipline within a wing and there are people on it who won't take your orders or whatever, well, then, you know, they need to be put out. Uh, so there's probably some people who would try to justify that. But in my view, the overall... Arching, the overarching feeling really should have been, well, despite our differences, we stood together in the frequencies that uh, looking on the days of death and our volunteers from both sides died. And that should be the overarching principle that should override any, any differences and disagreements. Now, I know today in, in, in the current situation that we're on quite a number of people who I would have known many years back, who came from another particular group and uh, that we would not have got on. We wouldn't have been in each other's company. Uh, we would probably have told stories about each other. Don't like him and maybe hear what he done and those type of uh, But today, I have discovered very many of the same people uh, are now much more open to realising that, look, we were all involved in a similar uh, situation here and really we shouldn't have been have as much kind of disagreements as, as there was so uh, it's it, it's it's almost like human nature will allow people to fall out but at the same time there are politics behind it which are making it that's the thing they do because that's what gets us uh, in the position of power you know people would say that the whole issue of the Bobby Sands election led to the development of the electoral strategy of the provost. You know, uh, 
others would say, no, the electoral strategy that was, was there before Bobby Sands, it just wasn't able to be brought out because it wouldn't have got the support. You know, so it's, you can have different arguments here about different causes, you know. Could you give us a wee sort of insight or a, a bit of a wider context on who some of the, the volunteers were on a personal basis? For for most of us, it's something that we've read about or, you know, seen documentaries on, but someone like, you know, Mickey Devine, who you knew personally, Tommy? Well, I mean, my, my, as, a, as an individual, how can I describe it? Mickey would have been, uh, well, when I first knew him, he was a fairly young, uh, bubbly, uh, wee devil in his own way, you know. He would have... He would have chanced his arm at the, you know, uh, just a kid in the streets, you know. He, he enjoyed the crack. He enjoyed, um, you know, company and he tried to get off with a woman, you know, the, well, the normal kind of a behavior of a, of a young lad at that time and that, and that era and that age. Um, he, um, you know, he, he developed his politics, uh, I suppose, just because of the area he grew up in and he had a family, the background, he, some of the connections of his family would have had a, a fairly strong Republican background, but more leading back over a few generations, not so much his current uh, acquaintances. But uh, like a lot of our young people at the time, uh, he just became involved in the overall kind of conflict that was happening, whether rioting in the streets or demonstrating on particular issues or whatever. And Mickey gravitated towards the position that was being adopted by um, the officials in terms of, you know, uh, helping. Like some of the issues that, 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 that the officials got involved in at the time would, I mean, they're hard to even sort of recall in some ways. Like, but I mean, the type of thing, there used to be barricades in the, the, almost every street, you know, and, the, and they were built up as, well, as a defensive mechanism for the area if the Brits came in. And people used to come out if the Brits came in and banging thin lids or hitting the lampposts with pokers and, and ringing bells all over the place. <laughs> you know, uh, and that would have uh, immediately brought out certainly the younger elements. You know, when I say younger, I'm not talking about children, like I'm talking about, you know, teenage elements or, you know, their 20s, that sort of, you know, young, fit man, like, coming, would have come out onto the streets, uh, preparing to fight the British Army to keep them out of their areas and so on like that there. And Mickey would have been much in that, in that, uh, in that tradition or in that, in that, that was his activities. And through that, he, and through his involvement in, uh, Big protest and so on. He began to get to meet people, I suppose, like myself and and others that he, he be more, maybe more of an age to him that he began to be friendly with and so on. And that in turn led him to take a decision that he wanted to be a, a, a more more active in in uh, in the defence of the areas and in the struggle. And uh, as he as he like many others, as he became more involved, he, he joined the Republican movement. But the Republican movement internally would have its own education classes and its own discussions and things like this here, although we didn't have Zoom. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, and Mickey would have been involved in listening to that and talking about that and developed his own, if you like, political uh, viewpoints. 
uh, and and became very loyal towards the group that he that he was with, uh, and and in turn, I suppose, was loyal to the leadership in the city. Uh, when many of the leaders of the city moved across or moved away from or were expelled or whichever from the officials, Maggie would have tended to go with the people he knew and the people he trusted and the people he wanted to. So uh, Mickey moved across to become part of the INLA. Um, as an individual, uh, you know, there's nothing outstanding, Mickey, in the sense that he was, he was no Rock Hudson, as they say, or no, uh, you know, Superman or, or anything else. He was an ordinary kid and he would have had his own, but ours was, you know, in his own life. But, uh, in many ways, he was just an ordinary young man from the city who was willing to sacrifice all that he had for what he believed in. Do you think of people such as Seamus Costello, a, a man who said his allegiances were to the working class and who never got to sort of see out his politics? How big a, or how big of a loss do you feel that he was given that you know, some of the Republican theorists or people with, you know, big ideas made it into the eighties and, and the nineties and some, you know, still going uh, to this day. It, it seems like he doesn't get the recognition that he kinda, you know, deserves. Well my view on Seamus Castle is, is one uh one of a a small band of heroes in this country's uh, history. You know, people who uh, had the, the ability, uh, had the analysis, uh, and, and had the dedication uh, to actually could, he could have changed or helped to change history. And I think he was taken out uh, by a bunch of traitors who, uh, I, whether they fully realized the damage they were doing, or whether it was just vindictiveness and revenge or whatever. Uh, but I personally believe that they removed from the struggle of this country, and I'm talking about generational struggle, not just the current moment. Uh, they removed from it people of the, uh, of the ilk of James Connolly, uh, of, of, of historical figures like Liam Mellows or people like, uh, you know, come back to Wolf Tone or whatever, uh, that Oslo would be among that element of the people that I believe. Seamus Coslow, uh, I remember one night I was asked to go to a meeting and, and with my own personal family situation, I was living in Dublin at the time and uh, there was a bit of an issue with my uh, personal level and my wife and stuff at the time and I really couldn't get going to the meeting. And, I, and Seamus called for me and I, and I said, look, Seamus, I, I just can't go. You know, it, things are just a wee bit too difficult. And he, I, Freaking hit that face off me, you know, and uh, you have to go to this meeting, you know. And, and I've said, look, that's all right for you. I says, you're, you're married to a woman that'll, you know, you, you know, she's as political as you are. She's quite, you know, she understands what you're doing. She supports everything you're doing. And, you know, I says, I, I personally, I'm like, doesn't have the same level of, of, of interest or politics or whatever. And I have to be, you know, try and run a family life as much as, as a political life. And I said, I mean, what would you do if you were told by his wife was Melissa? And I said, if you were told by Melissa? And Seamus said to me, he says, Tommy, if my wife or anything else for that matter ever interfered with what I believe is politically the right thing to do, 
He says, I would be leaving my wife. And I said, Carl, looking at fair play, I'm not quite at that stage yet. But I mean, that was Seamus. Seamus was, uh, his dedication was second in all. It wouldn't have cost Seamus a thought to leave Dublin at one o'clock in the morning and drive to Limerick, uh, have a half hour meeting and drive back to Dublin uh, if he thought that was something that had to be done. Uh, I, on a, I, I had seen Seamus uh, as a councillor in Bray. I, I was living in Bray at the time and I worked in Wicklow and um, due to the position that I was on at that particular moment and the movement and stuff, I uh, had an occasion to go to a, a council meeting that Seamus was attending. Um, I wasn't there to attend a council meeting. I was there to get Seamus <laughs> and go somewhere else. Uh, and he, I, I think the, the argument was, was something about um, proper drainage for farms or something. Something that really didn't really sort of attract my <laughs> major attention. And uh, uh, Seamus was like heart and soul and it as if it was, you know, the, 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 the fucking crucifixion or something. He was going on, oh, these pipes have to be laid and these pipes. It was like a speech from the dock. And I'm sitting there saying, we're supposed to be somewhere else. And he's up there. This is going to go on all night. But two minutes after, he says, and in response to this, I am now leaving this chamber as a master of protest. Straight down, calls me, oh, way off to another meeting. You know, he, he was able to, you know, do what he felt had to be done for his constituents and still move on to do other stuff that he had. He's, he's in, he was, I, I would have tremendous time for Seamus, to be honest. I really would. He'd be one of my, one of the people I would look up to. Can you explain if there was any difference in opinions between the hunger strikers themselves and, and how the strikes were playing out? Especially, you know, between Inla and, and the provisional wing. Well, to be honest, <laughs> I, I I I don't know of any issues that you know. I mean, I, I have to try and explain this, but the the people who went on hunger strike, uh, both ILA and IRA, died, and you know, <laughs> there was no fallout. In the middle of all of that, they, they, you know, they all accepted the heroism, I suppose, and the dedication of each other, regardless of which particular organization. In the aftermath of the hunger strike, there would have been other people who uh, saw various different opportunities arising uh, for, for many different reasons, who, uh, in my view, uh, took the wrong decisions and, and develop, uh, it helped to develop very bad relations between the ANLA and the area. But if you're asking about the actual hunger strikers, uh, I don't think there was any, I mean, I think that the very point that they were on the hunger strike was enough to unite them, regardless of what organisation they belonged to, you know. On the decision of the second hunger strike in 1981 for the, the women to be taken off, was that a decision made in consultation with the, the actual women involved or was that a decision made within the box despite, you know, their, their passion and the, their willingness to be involved? Well, 
there, there, well, there's a couple of issues that I, I need to... Firstly, um, to my knowledge and to my understanding, there was no decision or instruction or anything else from the INLA to any person inside, man or woman, as to whether they should be on a hunger street or not. Uh, it was a, an individual personal decision that they took. And I'm convinced that had somebody, a woman, had announced if they were connected to the NLA that they were going on Hunger Street, that the NLA would have stood by her. Now, I can't, and I'm not, you know, I'm not in a position to make the same kind of an analysis for the provisionals, their leadership or what decisions they may have come to. But there was certainly a few, I think, uh, in general, uh, where some people are saying, Many of the, of the women who were inside at the table were, were quite young, uh, and maybe it, it wouldn't have been, you know, it was too much to, uh, in a sense, kind of put any kind of pressure or try to, to, uh, involve them in it. It would, it was felt, I think that's, you no, know, I'm speaking here. I have to be honest. I, I don't have any specific information or knowledge to back up what I'm saying, other than what I said to you about Diana But as far as the, Professionals are concerned. Whatever decisions they took in terms of their the women in, in Armagh being a part of this hunger strike or not. Anyway, uh, you know, unfortunately, I'm not in a position to answer you in, in terms of what the professionals' decision was. Whether it was the women didn't feel that it was a good thing to do, or whether the provisional politically decided that it would be better to concentrate on on, on the one sector or or whatever i really probably I, I just i'm not equipped to answer that what sort of impact did bobby sands candidacy have on the morale of the the movement at the time the general public and with the people inside was it you know a boost and did people have faith or you know believe that he would win um uh, yeah, to be honest, I think, yeah, I think a lot of people, uh, if you were to ask, maybe a different viewpoints here, but uh, I know I certainly felt, and I'm nearly, I suppose nearly everybody I know felt that uh, Sands could win, Bobby Sands could win this election. But, but people may have had different views as to what that would mean. You know, uh, some people were saying, well, what if it was? Is it going to change Maggie Thatcher's mind? Uh, you know, will it make any difference to the overall issue of the prisoners or or whatever? I, I mean, no doubt some people felt that oh yeah, I mean he would be an MP now and uh, he would be you know the House of Commons can't just ignore that and uh, it it'll highlight the prisoners' struggle if you want throughout the world, never mind throughout Ireland. And so there was definitely a pro uh, or a, a, what would you call it, a, a bit of excitement and a bit of hope that Bobby's election would have would have might have changed things. But there were also quite a number of people who said, look, we're dealing with the Brits here. Well, you know, these people don't give a monkeys about what the world is. Like they, they'll do what suits their political uh, strategy. And uh, in, in a sense, but I'm saying that, uh, I mean, once the decision was taken that the prisoners the prisoners are more or less said to people on the outside, look, you can sit out here complaining, it's a bit like when Mickey Devine said to me, you know, you can go uh, and they, uh, a bar tomorrow and have a pint and say you're a bit. 
Whereas if I'm beat on here, I go back on the blocks and be treated like a fucking animal. Well, as a part like that, the, the hunger strikers, the people who had decided to go that far, had been pushed to a point that the, that was kind of almost, in fact, it was the last thing they could do to try and change the situation. Mm-hmm. So whatever people on the outside felt about it, and some people felt it's politically, you know, if you want to just analyze it in cold politics, it's a very dodgy strategy. Uh, what if they don't get through? People die. What would the result of that be? Would people turn against the movement? Would people, you know, and obviously those type of discussions were going on, you know, in the local pub or in the, whatever meetings were being held officially or whatever. Uh, but uh, I think it was kind of all overruled by the fact that almost no matter what we say, the, the prisoners have made their mind up. And uh, if and everybody had said, and no matter what your position was or what your view was, if this goes ahead, if the prisoners persist, if there is no way of stopping this, then forget about the arguments. We're all going to be back in the prisoners, regardless of what our initial views were. And that's what happened. Once the, once the prisoners went to that point and said, we're now commencing a hunger strike, all the arguments against it or, or for it or any other all disappeared. It was all there about highlighting the hunger streak and supporting the prisoner. How do you think that the political landscape has changed for the Republican movement since the Good Friday Agreement? And what do you personally think that, you know, the prospects are sort of going forward? I, I think you have to be, you have, it's hard to sort of, it depends on what you're using as your parameters to judge what the effect of the Good Friday Agreement is and what it wasn't. If you if you stand on a purely political, socialist, Republican principle and you ask yourself, has the Good Friday Agreement advanced the cause for a United Ireland, Socialist Republic or whatever, I would have to say the answer is no, it didn't, right? If you're saying, did it allow for Republicans, or at least some Republicans, to abandon and give up the, the fight for Seoul with, uh, with some degree of credibility, uh, and, and that they could take advantage of that by getting some degree of power uh, within, the, within the northern state, I would say, yeah, it was successful in that. Um, if you ask the, the people out in the street, how did it affect them? There's two two answers. I, I think you need to understand ordinary working class people in this area and so on. They have children, they have grandchildren, they've lived through the troubles that we've, well, some of us at least have lived through the troubles. And if you were to ask any individual, would I want my grandchildren to have to go through what I went through and so on? There's a fairly normal answer would be no. You wouldn't want them. Why would you want your children to go through this if you could avoid it? I mean, I remember a long time ago, my father saying something to me about you know, you weren't brought up to do this type of whatever I was doing, you know. And uh, I said, well, I remember this. Uh, if you had it done, I mightn't have to do it. So, you know, if, but if you were to ask the ordinary person in the street, are you glad of peace? Are you, you, know, you glad that there's no bombs? That uh, you know that people aren't being shot in the streets. The vast majority of people would say, "Yeah, I'm glad that's how that stopped." Right? But if you were to say, "Well, 
has it now changed your lifestyle in, uh, in a very positive way? I think a lot of people will say, not really. Like, during the Troubles, you almost kind of knew, you know, if there's a bomb, you know, not to go down the earth, uh, uh, you know, stuff like that. Whereas what's going on at the minute, because they're, uh, not simply because there's no IRA, or, but because the issues, I suppose, maybe has, has shifted slightly. People, certainly older people now are much more concerned about going down the street than they would have been during the Troubles. And it's more to do with, you could run onto a druggie or I might get mugged from his purse or so on. That was never really an issue during the whole free dairy thing because people tend to look at, this is our area, we look after ourselves, we don't have a police force, we don't have a, you know, the Brits are out there, they're our enemies, so we will protect ourselves and protect our own people. So it's set up, I mean, the different organisations were involved in different activities, but there was a general set up of, you know, if somebody was broken into, it would have been local people who investigated the break and tried to find out, and more than likely got a result, more than an outside police force would. Um, and, and so, it, you know, in terms of has the Good Friday Agreement changed people's lives a lot? I mean, we're worse off now in terms of jobs than we ever were. Uh, you know, the housing is every bit as bad as it was going back 30, 40 years. Um, we, you know, we have the likes of Tony Taylor, who's lifted out of his car, stuck into jail. Uh, and I mean, I, I was up as a, a witness or an observer, I suppose you may call it, at, at, at his trial. And we were told, you're on sitting in a trial. There was this MI5 agent sitting behind a curtain who is giving evidence. Tony's own barrister was not allowed to see that agent. Never mind, we, we weren't allowed to see him, obviously, but Tony's barrister wasn't. Uh, whatever. So this guy was able to say whatever he liked from behind a thing. And any question he was asked, which might have been awkward from the answer, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm suspicious of Tony Taylor because I saw his car driving into a garage. And you're saying, well, why is that suspicious? And then the, the, your man would say, well, it depends on who he's meeting. So then the, his barrister would say, well, can you tell us who he's meeting? And the, immediately, MA5, no, I can't go into that because of state security and national security. So he refused to answer any questions that meant anything. And then halfway through, we're told we all have to leave the court, including Tony, including his barrister. The whole lot of us are all put out of the court. And the only people who are allowed to remain on the court is the MA5 agent who was given evidence, his barristers. And I, this woman, and we asked, who is this woman? This woman is a defender who was appointed by the Northern Ireland office to represent Tony. And Tony says, I don't want the Northern Ireland office. <laughs> but this woman says, oh, you know, I, I've been asked to do this. And she says, you're going on there to defend me, and I'm not allowed here to, to listen to what you're saying. Well, how am I going to know what you're saying? What you? She then turns around and says, well, uh, you won't because we're also on instructions that we're not allowed to tell you what was said. So Tony's half of a day's trial is held completely in camera. There's nobody allowed on. Nobody's allowed to question. The people who are on are not allowed to tell anybody what was said. And at the end of it, they turn around and says, you're going back to jail. And they put Tony back in jail. So, you know, how has that changed from the Good Friday or internment? There's a lot of stuff that, you know, 
in terms of uh, did the drip feed come down as far as ordinary people? You know, people are still being houses are still being abused. We a situation where the cops raided a house up in Craigan not so long ago. Uh, and they stopped the person down the, down the city centre with his wife and children. He was actually going on holiday. This guy would be, would be a Republican, be known as they call him a dissident Republican, right? He was known and he was stopped. Now he produces his passports, he suitcases, he's going on holidays and so on. So the cops let him go. As soon as they let him go, what they do? They went straight up to Craig and they had his house, knowing he wasn't done, knowing the house was empty, and took a chainsaw and cut the front door off. You know, and they're saying, this is justice. And you say, well, and you go to the local Sinn Féin councillors and you go, ah, well, the police have to do their job and, you know, this is what you're getting. So people, a lot of, quite a lot of people are saying, this good Friday agreement has achieved nothing. Sort of tying into that, that last question there, what is the the landscape for the Republican left in the North at the moment and, you know, how strong is the Republican Socialist Party today? Well, I mean, I suppose there's two questions there. Uh, I mean, in terms of the, well, in terms of the left Republican, it's my view that uh, the majority of Republicans revolved around, I suppose, three, two or three organisations that were in the provisionals, the officials, and more, more recently the INLA. Uh, and the way history has turned out as a result of the approval strategy and so on, and I've often said to people, look, it's not about saying you're anti-peace, but you're anti, I'm anti the Sinn Féin strategy. It doesn't mean I don't want peace. You know, we we can all want peace, but we might have different views as to how it's achieved. Um, so, the 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 Republican left, I believe, has emerged, if you like, in a very desperate kind of way. It it hasn't emerged as a, a unified uh, party or or movement or whatever. You know, in Belfast or, or whatever, you might have RNU would be one group and um, was attached to some political or uh, military organization. And then you might have had uh, Eregi in another particular place and you might have had the real IRA and somewhere else. And, you know, so it's kind of emerged piecemeal. But if you were to ask, is there a common thread among them? There may be differences of views and strategies and stuff, but is there a common thread? Most of the people that you would speak to within that broad left, so-called left Republican framework, would say, our view is that the provisionals, Sinn Féin particularly, the provisional area, have given up and given away the struggle for an independent socialist republic. And they've done it because they believe they've, they've got what suits them. Power and Stormont, uh, you know, good jobs, housing, whatever, all the usual stuff that they'll come out with. Now, Sinn Féin, I believe, have a political strategy. I just don't think it's going to work. But I mean, no doubt they would try and justify it. But if you were to talk to those individual groupings, they might say, well, we don't like that group over there and they don't like this group over here and they don't. But if you were to actually sit them down, which we've done, sat them down around a table, and I put I hate using these words like, but the way it was put to the people sitting in the room is: look, this room is free from criticism. 
it's open to people putting forward ideas. See, as far as what was, well, I hate using the word, but the, what was called the cunt list, leave it at the door. You know, if we come on, I don't like him, I don't like him, I don't like him, well, I'll we'll just leave again and stop talking. So we just said, leave that at the door. This is about what do we think is happening in general. And we all have different views and so on. And that those sort of conversations have been taking place. Uh, no, they're not being coordinated in a, in, in, from some supreme command or some, you know, parent body, which is attempting to bring everybody together. But people are speaking across the political divides, if you like. You know, the INLA or the IRSP and Terry would would have a fairly reasonably uh, a decent uh, relationship with what used to be the 32s or are the 32 county sovereignty movement. Uh, you know, I'm a, uh, I mean, I run a, 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 for my sons now, I run a community organization. Our community organization would have different people from different backgrounds, some ex provost some ex uh, sticks, whatever. Uh, and, and we've, we, we all have a fairly similar kind of viewpoint of state where things should go. Um, so if you're looking at the general left, I think there, there is potential for general agreement, but it hasn't certainly not, it hasn't been reached. And, uh, whether it ever will is kind of up to the people who are consider themselves to be part of that. There, you know, there are different societies, different groups and so on, all of whom are saying, we would be part of the left Republican uh, strategy. Now, it's a question of who has the capabilities or who is, the, is willing to put themselves in, in the, the, the line of trying to get some kind of, like the, the Republican Congress that took place in Dublin, you know, to try and get that type of a development. Uh, it, it might be a bit off yet, might be a bit far, but it's certainly people are, are looking at it as an issue, like. In terms of the class issue and the, the national issue, was there a a major difference between Derry and Belfast? Was Derry, you know, more of a class issue and, and Belfast a national issue, or would they have, you know, sort of been fairly similar? Well, there would have been elements in both cities who adhered to, um, I suppose. Well, it's hard to say. I think Derry does doesn't have a very strong labor stroke <coughs> radical left uh tradition you know um but it would have a fairly decent if you want to call it nationalist position and that it's a nationalist city would have a general view of uh, a united ireland and so on belfast had a slightly different background and it was much more industrialized and there was work there was fairly large uh, working class kind of groupings in Belfast where it'd be in West Belfast or East Belfast. Uh, and you had the shipyards, you had various other uh, industrial complexes. So there was a, an opportunity, if you want to call it, for trade union growth in Belfast. Mm-hmm. More so, sorry, somebody cut out or am I cutting in or something? Darren, are you cutting in or something? No, it was P.O. I don't know why he's playing it. Sorry, Tommy, on you go. <laughs> anyway, I was, I was just trying to say that, that Belfast would have would have had a much more would have had a better base if you like in labour stroke Republican well left left politics than Derry. 
So uh, when uh, that's I'm talking about historically here, not, but um, uh, as as the movements, if you like, in the current struggle began to build and develop, it's not really un- unusual to think that the the movement in Belfast would have had a bit, a bit more of the broad left uh, class position that would have supported the leadership of Dublin, uh, whereas in Derry there was a bit more nationalist leaning, which would be a wee bit more inclined towards saying we have to get the country free and so on. But I think when both, uh, if you like, traditions are are seriously talked about and sat together, there does become a realism then between Belfast, Derry, Cork, or anywhere else for that matter, that we're actually not really talking about different things. We're talking about the same thing. And it's just maybe the emphasis in this particular area made it mean a bit more on the history of 1916 and Wolf Tone and the nationalist question and stuff. Whereas in an hour, it may have been a bit more about Lawler and, uh, you know, the, 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 the different uh, socialist kind of backgrounds. <clears throat> but I do think that uh, that's probably a more historical analysis than a current analysis, you know. Today, I think, the development of of a left nationalist, if you want to call it, I'm not even particularly like using the word nationalist, but left Republican, uh, what would you call position or strategy, is is being called for by uh, lots of people throughout the country, no matter what part of the country they come from, and they're just unclear as to how that can be achieved. And finally, Tommy, could you? give us an overview of the, the sort of work that you do in Derry just now and the, you know with the centre and the community politics that you're involved with yeah fair enough I, I uh, well I told you what my own basic history was and uh, at one point I was over the border for a couple of years and uh, after the um, what do you call them the um, pouch the, gra- the super grass trials and stuff I came back to Derry, uh, and uh, I got involved in, well, I suppose you'd describe it as community politics, involved in uh, working for the local a local community group, uh, talking about welfare rights benefits, what people are entitled to, and they're in the, you know, on the dole, or or people whose rights at work, or whatever. Uh, and and through that, we began to develop that particular this particular group, it's Rosemount, the name of the group, Rosemount uh, Resource Centre. We began to grow it and we, we identified a need straight away for uh, like uh, childcare facilities in the area to give women, uh, you know, a bit of freedom that somebody's able to look after a kid and also to give the children, you know, uh, an educational start in life at, uh, at a young age. So we set up a, a thing called Treehouse Playgroup uh, and that began to be very successful with 48 children uh, enlisted in that. We don't get grants for it. We don't get paid by anybody. The parents contribute, and that's what pays the salaries, if you like, of the, of the teachers. Side by side with that, we uh, the area we live in, and there's a big sort of grass banking behind the, the main housing area here. And at that particular time, uh, there was quite a com- lot of complaints about rubbish being tipped on it and rats developing and so on. So we initiated a cleanup campaign, the banking, which slowly but surely turned into an environmental project where we tried to landscape the place a bit and so on and so on. So we set up an environmental scheme. Um, 
So we we had the welfare rights, we had the environmental scheme, and, uh, and we had the uh, the playgroup and so on. Uh, and, a, and a building came up then for sale in the area, which belonged to, at that time, the uh, Department for Education. And I had been told by someone in the know that they were going to put it up for sale. And uh, <clears throat> so we went along and said we were interested in buying it, <laughs> you know, given the fact that we had no money was interesting. But uh, we we eventually, anyway, we decided we wanted to buy it. And we put the, we found out that there was, I think it was six or seven uh, local business people were also interested in purchasing it for whatever businesses they wanted to use for or whatever, I don't know. So what we did is we went round to the various business people and explained to them that this should become a community building, it shouldn't be private business and so on. And one of the groups who was looking to buy it was the local housing executive who were going to turn it into a small housing scheme. You'd be lucky if you get half a dozen houses on it, whatever. So we went to the then district manager of the housing executive and basically told him that we wanted it. He said he was, they were looking to put houses on it. And we basically told him that he'd never put a fucking digger on it. And, uh, he, he, uh, well, he pulled his out, he pulled out, decided he didn't want it. And the other people had also pulled out. So, uh, what went from six or seven people interested to one, which was us. And, uh, we made the offer and they, they sold it to us. Now we had no money. So myself and two others went down, signed on a mortgage deal to buy the building. Uh, and having bought it, we then went to the council. And we told the council that we have just done what they're supposed to do. We've just built or bought a community centre and we're going to develop it and so on. And by the way, we have no money to pay for it. Uh, and so if we're lifted and go to jail, we're going to blame you uh, because you have let this whole place go to loss. So the councillors took a decision that they would give us the money for the mortgage. Uh, so we now own the building. And then having taken on the building, we managed to get the local department to buy into what, what I don't know if you have it in Scotland or not, but here they have a, a thing called Neighbourhood Renewal, which is about, well, it's in theory, it's meant to say the money should go to the neighbourhoods that need it, you know, more than neighbourhoods don't need it. Uh, and as a result of that Neighbourhood Renewal, we, we get up at a fund now from the department to, to help to run them, the building that we're on. Uh, and for, through that, then we developed, uh, we have an, an environmental project. We have the welfare rights project. We have two separate playgroups, one for two-year-olds, children, and one for five to 11-year-olds. Uh, and they're both self-financing, you know. Um, we have the welfare rights, which are, we're having an issue with Derry City Council at the moment. They've cut us out of the funding for that, so we're, we're doing it without funding at the moment. Um, uh, we have a youth project, uh, which deals quite a lot of young people who get themselves into trouble. Theo would be the key man in it. Um, or he would have been. He's actually moving on now, but anyway. Um, that's the type of projects that we run. One of the projects we set up was a thing called Time to Choose. And Time to Choose was basically the statement. The name of it gives us a clue. We, we were getting approached quite considerably, quite a lot by young people particularly 
who are maybe their parents who were finding themselves in trouble with maybe local paramilitary organizations or whatever. And usually, most of the time, it was usually about selling drugs. You know, they're selling heroin or selling whatever it happens to be. And a threat of from one description or another would usually emerge that if uh, from one particular group or another would say, if this guy doesn't stop selling his heroin or whatever it is he's selling, we will shoot him. So, you know, um, that would some quite often come to us as a, you know, a heads up, which we would then have to engage with the police, with social services, with whoever agencies are required and say to them, look, there's a threat against this young kid. We're willing to take the kid aboard as, as best we can, try to work with him, try to persuade him and show him what he's doing. We would say to him, look, you know, you're taking drugs yourself, so it's your health problem. If you're caught by the police taking drugs, you'll never get out of the country again. There'll be a big hand going over. You want to go to America when you're 20 years from now, and it'll be you're going for a nowhere, pal, because you've got a record. Uh, I said, or alternatively, one of the, one of these paramilitaries might decide they've had enough to carry on and put you in a wheelchair, if not in a fucking hole. Uh, you know, so we would go down the list and say, but there is another option here. Like you do, you can have a choice. Now you see at the end of the day, it's your choice. We're not here to threaten, cajole or anything. We're just telling you as it is your decision. Quite often these, these kids would say, how about you know how I got involved? This and it becomes a kind of a counseling thing, which leads to if I could get out of this, if I could find a way forward. But some of the issues we run on the things that are very difficult to deal with. I mean, we had a young kid, he's Mars Sanford, and we went up to the house and he was looking to try and throw a rope over the banister to hang himself. And it was because he had a, a thousand pounds worth, I think it was, of drugs in the house, a local IRA unit or whatever knew about it or heard about it. They went in and took them, you know, to dispose of the drugs. But they didn't touch the young boy. They just said, that finishes now. You're not dealing with it again. And, but the young fella panicked because the drug dealer had threatened them. The drug dealer came back and says, I don't care who took the drugs. You owe me a thousand pounds. So the kid was panicking about the drug dealer, not about the IRA. Now, it turns out then when we did a bit of talking to him and a bit of research, the drug dealer was the UVF from Belfast. He was buying the drugs from Belfast and selling them. And I said, we said, do you honestly believe that some of these Republican groups are going to allow you to take drugs from loyalist groups in Belfast and sell them on the heart of Craig? He said, what the fuck's your head? They're not going to let you do it. So, I mean... These are the type of issues that it's very complicated to deal with because quite a lot of times you're saying the police, we don't get them involved. Well, and then we've, we've, we've had a colonies at least an arrangement. And the arrangement was if somebody leaves drugs, for example, on the R center and says, and it's happened, a parent would come in and say, look, I found that in my son's bedroom and it's a bag of white powder or something. And the, 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 the parent is panicking. The parent is saying to me, what do I do? I can't go to the social services because he'll be my whole family will be brought under the thing. If I go to the police, he's going to get fucking arrested and charged. If the paramilitaries find out, they're going to shoot him. You know, how do I deal with this? So we would say, look, let's take this a step at a time. Give us the drugs. We have to dispose of the drugs in a manner that covers ourselves. We can't be saying, oh, we threw them on the bun or we burnt them out the back. Or somebody was saying, hey, did you smoke them? You know, so what we do is we, we ring the police and we say, listen, 
What are the drugs being given in? They're here to be collected, taking wees. Now, the police would say, where'd you get them? We're not in a position to tell you. Who gave them? We're not telling you. So we don't give names, we don't do anything, and that type of operation. But at least we dispose of the things. And quite often, some of the threats would, that would come on would come from the police, who, for their own, wherever they get their information from or whatever, would maybe bring us and say, look, we've been told that there might be a threat on Joe Doherty up the street. Could you check it out? You know? I mean, so we've intervened in well over a thousand cases of young people who potentially could have been shot if they were if they continued with their behaviour. Uh, and hopefully at least quite a number of them have realised what they're at and decided to go a different road in their life or whatever. So I think we've been helpful in that way and we've maintained our integrity, you know, with the community and, you know, with whoever else we have to deal with. So that's the type of projects we run within the centre. And sorry, what? Uh, Jackie's, Jackie's sitting listening to every word. <laughs> uh, <well, laughs> tell P.O. she's listening. But uh, anyway, the, uh, the, uh, one of our projects we run is a thing called Our Generation, which is mainly for, it, it's, it's, it's actually open for men and women who are over 70, whatever. But in the main, to be frank and honest, it's more women who are using it. And it's sort of that age group, 70, 80 years of age. Uh, they come up to the center, they have their tea and biscuits or whatever, play a wee bit of bingo. Occasionally, as I say, they go and bust trips or a bit of music or whatever. So, um, th- that's the spread of type of projects that, we're, that we run within the center. And we're open to, you know, any of our suggestions or people's needs if they come along and we can meet them, we'll do it, you know. So, just to, to finish up and see. You know, again, a big, big thanks to Tommy for for taking the time out and and coming on and speaking with us, giving everybody you know a, a better insight and, and giving everybody or letting everybody listen to his experiences and his first hand experiences, everything. So no, just a a big, big thanks again, uh, Tommy, and a big, big thanks to everybody again for tuning in. And I hope, as I say, the hope we're all keeping well. And enjoying the, the episodes that we've been firing out of late and hopefully it shouldn't be too much longer until we're back with you. So aye, cheers guys. Bye.